Support for Iowa Catholic Radio and the Uncommon Good provided by Mercy College of Health Sciences. Learn more at mchs.edu. Welcome, folks, to the Uncommon Good with Bo Bonner and Dr. Bud Marr. Every week, diving deep into the truth of Catholic social teaching and restoring all things in Christ. The Uncommon Good is on the air. I'm Bo Bonner. And I'm Bud Ma. <laughs> oh, wow. How are we going to top anything over that? Uh, <laughs> this is the Uncommon Good uh, with some uncommon tunes to start out. <laughs> what got into you on that one, huh? I don't know. I was channeling a sitcom character. <laughs> okay. I think it was from Parks and Rec. Somebody's best friend. Okay. But I'm blanking on his name. Well, that is compelling radio. <laughs> <laughs> He's saying a lot of things that he said. Well, Sometimes after I watch a musical, I want to sing my dialogues. The, is this because we got done with like performance reviews and you're entering into your full Dean mode? And so like you're, you're are you happy or giddy at this point? Oh, I'm happy for sure. I, I don't know if it's reached levels of giddiness, but it is a good, uh, good place to get to. I, maybe it, it, this is also because Nebraska won a game. So you're, you're feeling better. I'm not feeling great about the season. I did enjoy that win, but uh, the win was what do you? What's it called? Like foisted by your own petard. That doesn't apply in this case. It was a pyrrhic victory. Pyrrhic victory because yes, two Pat- of our, our petards and in pyrrhicness. Our two best running backs are out for the season. Mm. Shoulder and hip dislocations. I thought when you dislocated something, you could just pop it back in, but yeah. sometimes it requires surgery. Well, and also yes, it, I guess it depends on what is broken. Um, when it's dislocated. Speaking about dislocated, this is maybe the most dislocated start of our show. So just to get some things underway, you are listening to The Uncommon Good, Bo Bonner and Dr. Bud Marr. I am Bo Bonner, Senior Advisor for Mission Initiatives and Director for the Center for Human Flourishing over at Mercy College of Health Sciences. But other than lamenting sports injuries, what do you do? So I am the Dean of Liberal Arts and Sciences at the college. So if you're studying physics or anatomy biology chemistry philosophy literature you're studying with one of my faculty i say my faculty like the faculty i work with that's right like the gang the gang yeah well the the whole gang is mercy college of health sciences who underwrites our show mchs.edu make sure to go check that out as you can tell what we're talking about of course the semester is rolling right along however it's always a good time that if you want to think about starting uh, to do so now, especially uh, because you can start in spring and summer along with the traditional fall here at Mercy College of Health Sciences. If you want to extend the healing ministry of Christ that has been um, in the blood of this organization and the institutions that we are members of since Catherine McCauley and the Sisters of, Inst- uh, of Mercy clear back in Dublin in the 1800s, mchs.edu to check out how you can be a part of that great legacy. If I got into the health sciences or health professions, I would want to be um, an athletic trainer for one of my favorite football teams. Back in 1994, when Tommy Fraser had blood clots, <laughs> I remember the doctor who was taking care of his blood clots, and I thought, that's a really important doctor. <laughs> it wasn't like a medical missionary or Paul Farmer. It was the guy taking care of our quarterback. <laughs> <laughs> I never – let's say this. Oklahoma State's uh, medical team uh, – Sort of was in the spotlight. What was what was the the poor gentleman uh, for the Bills last year whose like heart stopped on air? Yeah, Demar Hamilton maybe. So the guy who resuscitated him is an Oklahoma State graduate. Oh. So 
that's pretty cool. So it is totally possible that you can be an athletic uh, uh, athletic doctor and and save lives. But I know <laughs> I have never wanted to do anything doctoring except for finish talking about doctors of the church. But <sighs> we have to we have to do it. Unfortunately, we have reached the end of talking about um, Augustine's confessions. To make it stretched out any longer would be past the point of absurdity. We're going to do Book 13, Part 2, where I think we're going to talk about really how he shows allegory is not only important to how we read the Scripture, but how to basically understand life completely. I am still amazed at how wonderful this Book 13 is. Uh, So that's what we're going to talk about today. Are you going to be able to survive and go on without Augustine's confessions in your life after this? I will remember <laughs> you. <laughs> no, I have a strong devotion to Augustine. He's not going anywhere. And I attend St. Augustine's walk by. I love the statue of St. Augustine at the in the narthex of our church. Well, that's <laughs> perfect bookends for the opening of the show. This is the Uncommon Good, and we'll be back right after this. The Uncommon Good, Bo Bonner and Dr. Bud Marr joining you this Wednesday. Thank you for listening to the show. We are rolling on with the last part of this segment of Radio Reading Roundup. We're finishing up Book 13, uh, the second part of it, um, here with St. Augustine's Confessions, as we wave goodbye to the wonderful world of Augustine's Confessions. Bud, very timely that he wraps up this book giving his strongest and most explicit defense of allegory. Um, He's been hinting at it the whole time. I think back to multiple episodes in this uh, series we've been doing and talking about how Augustine reads his own life allegorically or maybe human life completely as allegoric. Um, Here he really just gives the brass tacks of why we need to read allegorically and how it connects to the deepest sort of impulses of God as the creator and redeemer. Um, Like we said in last week's show, even the idea of let there be light to him is allegorical, not only the creation of the universe, but as an allegory to every soul that has been redeemed by God. Um, It's just talked through everything that he says. Yeah, this is really an essential part of the Catholic faith or the Catholic understanding of the world. Augustine basically says at one point in this book that life or world history is not just like um, a series of events without any sort of tell us or direction but god has ordered things in such a way as to teach us essential truths about who he is Um, i actually wasn't really exposed much to this way of reading scripture until late in my undergraduate studies then especially after i became catholic i think the catholic worldview or the catholic lens is really well suited to seeing allegory because we already have an understanding of the sacraments that physical tangible things can convey spiritual graces. Uh, So this is sort of uh, extended to our very reading of Scripture or of historical events. Now, it's much harder when you move away from the inspired text. All of history is is ordained and ordered in such a way to bring it to completion in God's ends. But it's harder for us to say, look at, I'll just throw something out there, like World War II, like why did that happen? What was going on? What is, like, how do we read or look back on those events? But in Scripture, these sorts of things are obvious and sometimes pointed out by the sacred sacred writers. So, for example, real, real quickly, something like Noah's Ark prefigures the church. There's this one ark of salvation within which folks enter to avoid destruction. 
or if you're familiar with like Marian devotion, something like Maria's the new and greater uh, tabernacle in the temple. What am I looking for? Ark of the Covenant, where in the holiest part of the temple, there was a place that was reserved for uh, inside of the box was like manna and Aaron's Aaron's rod. And so manna was a prefiguring of the Eucharist. And just as the Ark of the Covenant contained this bread of life, so Mary in her womb contained the true bread of life. So chalked full of the deepest and most important interpretations is this allegory for us in the church. Augustine brings up an amazing one that I want to say is sort of, it works in a threefold manner. So again, just to set the scene, this book is hard to describe and give a title to. Like I said, at least in my um, translation, it calls it the creation and the, and the prophecy of the church, which is confusing because what it's actually going on is he goes, hey, by the way, if you look at the creation narrative, it is an allegory for the church itself. And so the church if you want to know, oh, what is the church like? What is it composed of? He goes, all you got to do is read the scriptures. The church was always in God's eye, uh, the, uh, mind, the mind of his eye, as it were, um, when he, at the dawn of creation itself, and then he just goes nuts from there. Mm. So he's been reading through, but, and he makes this point, he gets to the part about the sky, uh, he, you know, that God makes a vault in the sky, a, a vault above the earth and calls it sky. And then from there on, he goes, look, that's like the scriptures, and you're like, okay, I'm interested. <laughs> what, what does this mean? Now, you have to remember that at this point, and he'll definitely make a bigger point as he goes along, that, you know, the earth and all of its creatures and, like, the soil, all of this is a description of human beings here below and the various things that are going to get them to heaven, the thing above the sky, as it were. So this idea that above um, the working of everyday humans is a vault that contains this right, but also has stars. You know, so we, we talked about this last episode. But we can make a bigger deal of it again. That, you know, there's, there's three lights. There's, there's the lights uh, of, of the sun itself. Um, there's the moon and the stars. He'll talk about this, but he goes, look, the vault of the sky is like scriptures because scriptures are above everything. We look up to the scriptures in order to set our sights on what's above the sky, on what's heaven. But he also starts to, he, he uses a Bible verse. It's a psalm, I believe, bud, where they say the sky will be rolled up one day like a scroll or a book. I think that's in the Psalms. It's in the Bible. I know that. <laughs> but at present, it's spread over us like the skin um, of a tent. When he does that, at that point, he goes sky, skin, and scripture. And he goes back and forth through all of them. So he'll say, look, scripture has uh, become even more noble uh, with authority now that its original writers have died. And so look how he's making an allegory from the fact that the writers have sort of died and become like an animal who has died and whose skin is used to make a book. And so you go, oh, that's right. Back then, when he talks about scriptures, it's literally not paper. He's literally thinking of skin. And so then, okay, the, the, the sky is like the skin of earth. Interesting way to think of it, but like again, in one way, he's like sort of ahead of the game. Our atmosphere is sort of like the skin uh, that our planet um, sort of has around it. Um, then he goes like, okay, so scripture itself is a skin, like literally dead animals that have been made into a skin. Um, but then also, he he goes, look, uh, God gave us skin after we were uh, expelled from the garden. So if you remember this part, it's we noticed our nakedness, and then God gave us skins 
to wear. And so, you know, depending on who you're talking to, but this is like the skin of animals to wear to hide our nakedness. Um, so scripture is like a new skin for us to wear. It's our interaction with the world. But the idea is that you start to think about a vault above the sky that we look up to in order to understand um, what is going on below, but also to put on sort of a new skin, a new humanity. I mean, that's all right there, he thinks, when in creation we talk about God creating the vault um, of the sky, which is scripture for us to look up to. Yeah, I kind of sneak previewed this a couple weeks ago, but I think this is essential reading for anyone who's going to be interpreting scripture or or teaching others, because Augustine steers us clear of many of the pitfalls that come with biblical interpretation. So a couple weeks ago, I think I was talking about how when folks read the book of Genesis, sometimes they get caught up in questions that the author seems not to have been intending to address. So prominently something about like, was, was this six literal days or how old is the earth? And that's maybe led us astray from seeing these core truths that God has embedded in scripture. So at one point in this, in this book, Augustine says that scripture offers us a single truth couched in simple words when it tells us in the beginning, God made heaven and earth. So that's really like that. God created everything and called it good. That's sort of the truth at the heart of Genesis one. Now Augustine goes on immediately to say, even this is interpreted in manifold ways and talks about, you know, like, in the beginning, did something exist beforehand, et cetera, et cetera. So he's he's open to some critical questions, but he he leads us back always, I think, to the heart of the matter. And interpreting allegory, I don't mean to get too far astray, Bo, but you have to have this sort of tool to read scripture, this sort of methodology, or you can be led astray. So I mean, take for instance something like the conquest narratives in the Old Testament, you know, these these narratives of Israel capturing lands, and then in some cases like decimating whole cities and, and killing men, women, and children. Now, you could have a conversation about the historicity of that. We won't get into that today. But beyond that, if you have this kind of like real simplistic literalism when it comes to reading Scripture, you could walk away from that and say, like, well, you know, like we're the people of God. Maybe we should be doing the same thing. If you have an understanding of allegory, you can say, like, we have the historical events that took place. And then, you know, there are the church fathers like Augustine who say, like the Canaanites – uh, they they symbolize or are symbolic of our sins, which we have to you know snuff out in combat. And so you can see how this thing is at work. The one payout that Augustine comes back to is like the scriptures stand above us, like we stand under the judgment of scripture and not vice versa. So he says, even a person who's already in the spirit, already made new in the knowledge of God in accordance with the image of of our Creator, must be a doer of the law and not a judge of it. So I think Augustine talks about, but also models the right sort of impulse or like stance we're supposed to have in relation to scripture. Yeah. I think it's important, even with your example about the conquest narratives, he doesn't talk about it in 13, but I think it's, it's germane to many of the things he brings up. We get the ancient world backwards when you, when we think, Oh, what's happening is they're like us and they read stuff that happens in the old Testament and go, Ooh, you know, we don't, we don't think that's right anymore. Let's come up with real tricky ways to read it so that we don't have to deal with the brunt of these things. The ancients just simply weren't like this. They saw the sort of brutality all the time. If you are a Roman living in Carthage and then Rome and, you know, the different places that Augustine went around in that time period, 
plenty of bloodshed that looked much more like the conquest narratives than uh, the very comfortable lives that we live and would want to excuse so that we can seem polite. No, I actually think it's quite the opposite is the ancients are like, obviously people are going to massacre each other because humans are sinful and everything like this. What they're saying is even human viciousness, though, God can use to write a higher story. So he's not saying, oh, hey, let's ignore um, the conquest narratives and and the, the sort of um, viciousness of what we read there. I think we're wrong to do that. Like, I'm not saying that we should paper over the idea of the conquest narrative. But to your point, I think Augustine's saying is, even when things like that happen, which we ourselves probably wouldn't, um, you know, if we were writing a book or whatever, God uses the foibles of humanity, the limits of humanity, or just the reality of, uh, reality of humanity to speak much larger than the events. And that's what he's saying is it's not just a tale of one group replacing another, which if you're being the widest scope of anthropology possible, but that's actually unremarkable, not because like we need to overturn it, but because in human anthropological history, that happens all the time. Mm-hmm. So people can be as freaked out as they want about the conquest narratives, but that's sort of like the status quo with most of humanity. The thing about the Old Testament that's weird is that God keeps getting on Israel's case for things that they do. Multiple times you you get, I, I know this is actually just getting into interpreting the scripture, but I think it's in the spirit of Augustine. Multiple times before they actually have to go win a battle in the conquest, almost always right before it, Israel did something that if they were just faithful, there either would have never had to have been a battle or it would have been completely done with right at the top of the hat. You can even think about them talk, you know, having the spies come back to Joshua where they sort of dissembled and talked about that they were, you know, you know, giants and everything like this. Again and again, Israel's unfaithful, and then this like conquest war just becomes a mud mire that takes forever and is never clearly won. Augustine's saying not only um, do we look at this and see that God is already understanding the idea of conquest and victims and things different than basically every religion around them, but he goes, even written in the deeper difficult, dark story of humans replacing one another is this, and with this people, God spoke through their story in a way with, that's much larger and resounds to much more important spiritual truths and realities than simply the history of an anthropological commonplace, which is one group conquering another. Man, this would be a great show to have our good friend Matthew Umbarger on for, <laughs> because I think what Augustine talks about here really shows and demonstrates the importance of deeper study, even in the biblical languages, if you have time for it. Yeah, you know, this is slightly different than allegory, but I see in what Augustine is doing and then some of the other church fathers, there's almost like layers to history. Mm-hmm. So you think about Adam and Eve, and when God tells Adam to tend to the garden, the verb there, I believe it's shamar, the other time in the Old Testament that it's primarily used is when uh, the biblical writers are talking about the priestly vocation. So just as Adam was meant to tend or shamar the Garden of Eden, that's basically the task that the priests have in the temple. And within the temple proper, there's even all this sort of like Edenic imagery. So the temple is kind of a restoration of what was lost through humanity's sin, such that human beings are again able to approach the intimate presence of God. Now, it's not a full restoration of that. Like, they're still waiting for 
the full restoration in Jesus Christ and at the end of time. But you've got that layer with like the beginning of things, the partial restoration with the temple, and then with with the coming of Christ, he goes through the same temptations that Adam faced. And so he's he's in the garden of Gethsemane in this case, but whereas Adam fell, Christ is faithful. And that initiates like, you know, from the side of Christ, the water and blood, the birth of the church with this new priesthood that, um, you know, Shamar's creation, but also the people of God in such a way that at mass, like this celebration is a glimpse of the heavenly restoration when God will uh, make all things new. Well, speaking of that too, and this relates back, you had brought up, oh, I think it was a few weeks. You, you had brought up questions. You brought up last week. You're like, hey, how do you bow, not Augustine, bow, interpret what Augustine meant when he was talking about the people above the waters? Mm-hmm. And so to get to that, because I think this finishes out both what you're saying about you know the, the, the goal that actually all this is um, going for, but to finish out Augustine's, um, allegory of the sky in scripture. So he goes, there's angelic waters, right? Because at the creation narrative, there were two waters. There were the waters under the earth and the waters above the vault of the sky, which is, you know, is where rain comes from in the creation narrative. But he goes, the, the waters above are basically either the angels themselves or um, the restored, the saints in heaven who are above the, sco- the, the vault of scripture. And the reason, but is because they don't need scripture anymore. Now, that's because, not because Scripture is, like, only, like, for its use, but it's because they read the unchangeable book, which is God's face and God's will. So, Scripture, which we get at, but why it's, like, multifaceted, why there can be disagreements that Augustine himself admits, why it needs to be able to say multivalent and multifaceted things throughout time is because under the sky, under Scripture, like you said, that judges us and not us it, um, we're full of change, Right? Because we're under in the Valley of Tears, we're uh, in the, the world of changeableness and materiality. Above, they're unchangeable, and they unchangeably read the unchangeable face of God. So they're above the Scripture, the vault of heaven, which doesn't mean, of course, that Scripture is bad. Scripture is what we look through and up and towards to get to the unchangeable will of God. So the vault of Scripture is for us who are in time. It stretches until the world ends uh, to point us, like we said, to heaven above the vault, that will never pass away. God's word, which is not the, like, so scripture and God's word is not synonymous for multiple reasons. On one hand, Christ himself is the word of God, but even God's spoken word, as it were, um, scripture is not um, the extent of it. It's part of it, but his word is even more full and it abides forever. And it will never, his utterances will never pass away, even though every tent and skin will be rolled up at the end of time. So scripture is going to be fulfilled. So it's not like uh, you, you, even in you, maybe rabbis or uh, certain saints would argue with me, but for Augustine's vision, you don't need to have Bible studies in heaven because you'll study the unchangeable will that made scripture for those under the veil of time and change. This idea of manifold meaning or a multitude of meanings is important to return to and to highlight because what we're not saying, we have to be careful about this, Bo. Like, there's there's a way in which you could interpret allegory as sort of transcending and undoing the the literal meaning. But in most cases, like what's really taking place is that if we stopped simply at the literal meaning, we would miss out on this like richer truth. So, a real obvious example that Augustine points out is this command to Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply, and of course that has a register. In like our normal family relations, like the uh, 
the call to marriage is a vocation and husband and wives do a great thing by, you know, like, uh, bringing more souls into the church as it were, or, you know, like having children as a gift to the world and to make, you know, like to seek uh, a just and more peaceful uh, order here below. But Augustine says like, you know, he's, he talks about, it's like, if this was simply about carnality, you know, like, uh, it would, it would, it wouldn't have the kind of fullness that God intended. And so in, like to increase and multiply and fill the earth for him is to bring about this abundance in the works of mercy and to, to share the truths of scripture, to, you know, like to make wisdom known throughout the world. And so in all these cases, even sometimes with prophecies, there's sort of like the initial fulfillment or meaning, but it has this like, uh, like a point down the road where like the fullness of what God was trying to communicate is made known. Well, when we get back from the break, we'll continue on this because he, he goes to the extent, bud, of noticing that God commands certain things to increase and multiply, but not all living things. Now, in a very technical sense, I think you can read the scripture and realize that it's not like God saying like, oh, these other creatures better not, and of course they fill the world. But for Augustine, there's spiritual reasons that this is only repeated twice. And because he's a close reader, it's very interesting. So we'll get to that after the break. This is The Uncommon Good. Bob Honor and Dr. Budmar, stick around. We'll be back right after this. Uncommon Good, Bo Bonner and Dr. Bud Marr joining you this week. Thank you for listening to the show, no matter how it is that you are listening to the show, whether that is over the airwaves and everywhere that Iowa Catholic Radio reaches through the great state of Iowa, iowacatholicradio.com, the Iowa Catholic Radio app, and then, of course, all of our good podcast listeners. Welcome again, and thank you for listening to the show. Bud, we are wrapping up our radio reading roundup with St. Augustine's Confessions, Book 13, Part 2, all of that a mouthful, but of course we have said many things about uh, this wonderful book. Glad to be closing it up um, here, talking about the importance of allegory. When we left uh, people to the break, we were talking about that St. Augustine starts to, he, he brings up the phrase, fruit, be fruitful and multiply. And to show you that before he even gets to the allegorical point, that he's just a close reader, he notices that all sorts of living things are talked about in um, the creation narrative, but only two seemingly are told, or maybe it's three, uh, are told to be fruitful and multiply. So he'll say, um, the fact is the command increase and multiply is not addressed to vegetation or trees or to beast or reptiles, although all these keep up their numbers and conserve their species by giving birth, uh, as do fish and birds and humans. So those three. So he's, he's basically saying, what's the significance of this? And you go, wow, he's a much closer reader of scripture than I am that he noticed this. But he goes, I will not pass over in silence the meaning that comes to mind when this passage is read, for it is true in itself, and I do not see what is to stop me from responding sensitively to figurative expressions in your book. Uh, then he says, now I know that something, oh, that's where you, you've, you've said this before about like that there's multiple ways to read these things. Um, but he goes, so then if we consider the nature of creatures as they are in themselves and not allegorically, but literally, the command increase and multiply is appropriate to all. So why is it he's saying that they only apply to a few things? Why is it that Scripture doesn't repeat this for all things that could increase and multiply? Why is there a choice? So, Bud, before we run down all of the ways he thinks this bears out, 
I just think we should stop and appreciate that Augustine shows how close of a reader and what sort of receptive reader. So he's not like, oh, I had a plan and I'm going to go prove that scripture is already saying my plan. He's sort of revealing to us what it's like to read closely, notice that there's something weird, right? Why is it that only these living creatures are told to increase and multiply when clearly everything else can? And then to ask ourselves prayerfully, is there something to it? And the assumption is, like he says, that because this is the truth itself, the, the, the vault spread across the sky of our world to, to direct us to heaven, it's not for naught that the Scripture has um, interesting little things like this that should grab our attention and make us at least prayerfully ask, is there something to this? Yeah, I was talking about something along these lines with a good friend this past week and where he was saying he thinks Lexio Divina gets kind of a bad rap. And what he means by that is uh, he was saying that in his experience in parishes and things, in some cases, it's become very imaginative. Like Lexio Divina almost takes on the form of like meditation as we sort of experience it out like in popular culture today. And it's not really necessarily always paired with like close study. But I think Lexio Divina or like praying with the words of scripture, if it's wed to a careful attention to what the biblical authors say, and it's wed to close study and sort of a deeper understanding of the Bible, that's when things can really flower. So you see with someone like Augustine, I, one thing I love about the Confessions bow is at the end of each book, he turns to prayer. So he narrates events from his life or he interprets parts of scripture and then that naturally transitions into prayer. And and with, with all these things, like with his interpretations of scripture, it has the tone of like good Lexio Divina where it's clear like he's internalized these things. I imagine, you know, earlier in the book, Augustine gets into the whole discussion of reading out loud and how he's so impressed by mm-hmm. St. Ambrose's ability to uh, to read silently and that like first sort of mesmerized him or whatnot. But I can imagine Augustine at different parts of his life just reading the scriptures out loud. And as we've said on the show before, there's really a way in which they're meant to be. Like the natural housing for scripture is worship. But beyond that, books like that probably, are books like Hebrews probably probably were homilies. And so reading, reading them out loud gives you a sort of different encounter with them. But for Augustine, it's not, again, that he's sort of entering into like just this sort of like mystical ecstasy or the, that does happen to him sometimes. That's not the goal per se. It's always wed to understanding. So understanding and prayer are inextricably linked. Absolutely. And, and to sort of, that's a good setup to explain what he thinks is going on yeah. uh, with these two. Uh, because, again... Augustine didn't go, I'm starting this chapter and I'm going to show you what I think, um, you know, the church needs to be like, and I'm going to go proof text it by reading creation. Um, He starts out with the idea that creation itself uh, is multifaceted and not only is explaining the scriptural account of creation, what happened at the beginning, but that it continues to resonate and tells us what it is we can be doing now and what we can uh, think of uh, expect in the future and what we should be doing about it. So you think about the fourfold meaning of Scripture. But for this, he, he, he goes, look, if you're talking about just carnal increase and multiply, he goes, every living thing does that. But he goes, they increase and multiply, but then they die off. And he goes, what are things, though, bud, that truly 
can increase and multiply and, and continue to multiply. And he goes, they must be something much more akin to spiritual things. So he thinks it's interesting, right, that he's already decided that the human itself, right, is a symbol, is allegorically um, the, the truth about the intellectual and spiritual aspect of, of living creatures, right? That a human, right, anytime it shows up, reason and intellect is involved. And he goes, but the sea creatures, which he's already has established, that the sea with its rock, I mean, he goes all into this, but if it, if it, what he says is the fish essentially are symbols of uh, material signs pointing us to, so they're in water below. The fish are the signs pointing us to the waters above, which are the waters above uh, the vault of, si- of, of the sky, scripture, and heaven. Yes, we can all get very involved. We should draw a map if you uh, really want to figure this out. But what he comes to mind here is he goes, look, to dwell on this is to say deep-seated carnality and its needs suggest that we take the offspring of the waters to represent signs displayed materially. So again, he goes, these are like the waters that aren't above the vault, they're below, and so the creatures in them are signs, material signs that point us to the reality of the spiritual. And then he goes, but the fecundity of our human reason leads us to interpret the breeding of humans as a sign of truths processed by the intelligence. I think here's the payoff. He says, we believe that this, Lord, is why you command increase and multiply, was issued to each of these two. For I assume that by this blessing you granted us the faculty and the power both to articulate in various forms something we've grasped in a single way in our mind, and, so, and to interpret in many different senses something we have read, which, though obscure, is couched in simple terms. So it is true that he goes, look, the creation account shows us why we have to think in material signs, but because, and those can in, truthfully increase and multiply, right? Because human history has written these words, but, and, and they continue to um, both live, but then they, you know, they multiply. There's different ways to say the same thing. But he goes, the human intellect truly increases and multiplies because it's spiritual. And so although things are said and written down in a simple way so that they can be signs that point to the reality of heaven, our intellects allow us to increase and multiply the spiritual meaning behind all of those words. So even this sort of discrepancy that the command increase and multiply is only said of two creatures, the water ones and then humans, and not all of the ones that actually do increase and multiply— for Augustine, this is a spiritual message about the reality of allegory. He uses allegory to explain allegory, but... Were there any of his allegories where you were like, whoa, 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 come on, well, too far? I, I think there's ones where he says a few that I'm sure begin to get him in trouble, but it's interesting how he takes them. Mm-hmm. So, for instance, he talks about the difference between man and woman, and he talks about the physical strength men usually have above women, but he doesn't go the typical... Um, men must dominate women or anything like this. What he says is, so, I mean, it, it, for him, it's almost reversed. This is not like, because of how men and women are physically on average, um, we should determine uh, that things must be a certain way. For him, he goes, yeah, this is just this interesting thing God did to remind us that spiritually, for all of us, and he talks about this equally, equal, equally with men and women, he says, the spiritual guides the material. And so... The physical difference of, of, of men and women, which I'm sure Augustine will get no remarks for being like forward thinking. I mean, he's a man of his times. But for him, it's not essential to the ordering of men and women. It's actually just a sort of natural sign about what's true for all of us, that spiritual, uh, the, the spiritual aspect of us is, is 
is stronger and should help and defend the material part. And so weirdly enough, he goes into St. Paul's description that men should be willing to die uh, uh, for their wives, saying that intellect, our, our intellectual sides should be willing to make sacrifices for the sake of our bodies, which is sort of interesting because I think a lot of people would assume Augustine would say, throw, you know, sacrifice everything of your body and ignore it for the sake of your intellect. But he says, just as husbands should defend and, and uh, give themselves up for their wives, the stronger intellectual part of us should be willing to make sacrifices for the sake of the good and holiness of our bodies. Mm. Pretty surprised by that one. Yeah. That he sort of throws that in the middle of everything else. No, that's great. And one, one thread that I saw running throughout this section that isn't necessarily very explicit. So I, maybe I'm being a little fanciful and I'm like grasping for straws here, but well, I think I have grounds for it. So at the bottom of my text, there's a whole apparatus with like footnotes and things. And it's amazing through this section how many references the commentators see to other parts of scripture, like even the New Testament. Mm-hmm. I think when he's talking about the Garden of Eden, it seems to me like he has another touch point in view, and that is the bookends of scripture, the beginning and the end. So at certain points, like when he's talking, like the, the book of Genesis does mention these rivers that are flowing through the garden. Mm-hmm. And then Augustine talks about this river that brings life, like this eternal fountain. And of course he's got, uh, sort of like um, uh, a reverie, like he he riffs on this for a little while, but I, you know, that could be developed so much further. Where at the beginning and end of Scripture, there's all these parallels. So th- the river of life is one, the tree of life that grows up next to it. You know, uh, we've mentioned him on the show before. Alexander Schmemann says Genesis shows us that from the beginning, we're a hungry creature. And that seems blatantly obvious, but like you see the wedding feast of the lamb and the book of revelation, whereas, uh, whereas feasting at the beginning, well, God does give these commands about what the first man and woman are and are not supposed to eat. And so immediately God is like taking care of these needs. And then as scripture continues, you see like, again, it, it starts to get heightened until you get to the point where. Uh, God is feeding us with his very divine life in the Eucharist. And so um, at the end of it, although if we could edit that little pause out, but when the show's over at the end, at the end of it, although um, Augustine comes back to like this core spiritual truth that as creatures who are not unchangeable as creatures who are finite and sort of located in a space and time, we can't fulfill our own needs but God who's unchangeable light. So Augustine plays on the idea of light, but also God who provides us this fountain of life meets those needs, which if we seek, seek, seek to meet them out in the world, we're going to end up feeling frustrated and unfulfilled. No, I'm, and I'm glad you brought that up too. Cause again, light, like the last things we really have to talk about, right. Are light and then rest, both things that you, you uh, pointed to there on one hand, again, he talks about the sun and moon uh, uh, the light of day and the light of night, right? The, like the two uh, lamps that the creation account talks about. So he goes to, to, to get out, to combine what we were talking, like I was talking about and you were talking about with this. The sun is truths of contemplation, right? So when, when we think about, okay, there's signs uh, in the seas that replicate because we can always write more signs. And then spiritually, um, those things can increase and multiply because we can um, always come up with more to your point about, so we can always be fed materially, but we can also always be fed more and more with more spiritual nourishment. And so he goes, 
even the sun, moon, and stars demonstrate this. The sun, which appears during the day, um, is contemplative truths and can only be seen in the light of grace. But he goes, the moon is like putting into words. So the moon is the light of truth that is something like rhetoric, bud, or, or argumentation that people can make. All other things, all the other stars, um, are like healing. Uh, uh, the, the moon and the stars are at night because they're for the sake, uh, for, so healing and, and, and signs of, of um, you know, people, uh, I'm trying to think of a very easy word, uh, the, the saints and, and their example of all of the things they do. And so he goes, of course, the moon and the stars appear during night because in the nightness, uh, in the dark of, of night of sin, we need rhetorical truths that make arguments for us, but we need the examples of good works. That was the very easy word I was trying yeah. to remember. Once we come into the day, we can contemplate the sun, um, which is the true light. And oh, by the way, bud, where is it that we should find these little suns walking over the earth. And he turns to Pentecost, right? And he goes, the flames atop the apostles' heads, right? So that same contemplative proof, uh, truth that is symbolized by the sun is shown in Pentecost and the, the tongues of flame on the apostles' heads. But what all of this is for, right, is the rest at the end. So, you know, you're talking about bookends. Yeah. So we go to the end of the creation account. And he goes, seven times according to my account does Scripture relate that you looked on what you have made and found it good, but this eighth time you looked on all your works together, and lo, not merely are they good, but taken as a whole, they are exceedingly good. Severally good, they are exceedingly good altogether. And once more, God doesn't himself see in succession. He wants to remind us. He is seeing it through our eyes, which is this amazing thing he wants to say, that God, of course, is, so to speak, always living in that eighth. It is exceedingly good because, of course, he sees all things at once. Yeah. But for our sakes, he sees them the seven times at the end of the seven days and says they are good. And he does this, he says, Augustine, by seeing it through our eyes because God in his eternity can see how it can be good through the eyes, through our eyes seeing it. A very interesting thing to start wrapping up, bud, this entire work of confession where essentially he goes, the saints should confess the truths of the redemption, because in some ways, that is, they start to see their lives through the eyes of God by precisely letting God, as it were, see through their eyes the very goodness of his grace. Well, there are parts of our faith that I don't think we can distill down to just like one idea and leave it at that. So I'm thinking, for example, of the doctrine of justification, how we're made right with God. And some theologians will say, well, it's really like a juridical concept that God like a judge declares us innocent and other theologians have rightly pushed back and said, no, like if we look at the, especially the Eastern fathers, they show us that what God is doing when he saves us is that he's healing us from a, from a sickness or an illness and restoring to us the fullness of life. And with, with something like justification, you can say like, well, we don't have to settle on just one. Uh, the technical term is atonement theories, like these different theories, like the, the, the Christus Victor, or like I said, the divinization or healing, they can show us like different shades of this one truth. It's just, it's similar. I think when we talk about heaven, there's different sort of imagery or ideas that are thrown out there to sort of like explain heaven. I've always been drawn to St. Augustine's and this idea of like Sabbath rest or eternal rest. And I contrast that with, you know, there were like the, um, the Cappadocians, like these other uh, prominent church fathers 
they describe the heavenly experience as like this eternal movement into a deeper understanding of who God is. Augustine really like his prominent metaphor is one of rest. And you really can't outdo Augustine's language. Like I was going to try to summarize it, but like a real quick excerpt, this whole order of exceedingly good things, immensely beautiful as it is. So creation will pass away when it has served its purpose. These things too will have their morning and their evening, but the seventh day has no evening and sinks towards no sunset for you sanctified it that it might abide forever. And then he starts to build on these like beautiful ideas of rest I've always been drawn to that. Like the the theologian who I have the strongest devotion to, St. John Henry Newman, he sort of deployed similar ideas. He's got this famous prayer where he says, like, may God support us all the day long till the shades lengthen and the evening comes and the busy world is hushed and the fever of life is over and our work here is done. Then in his mercy, may God give us safe lodging and a holy rest and peace at the last. Very beautiful very Augustinian in my opinion. Agreed. And like just to two more things from Augustine to sort of tie this up because I think they it's exactly right. He goes, we therefore see these things you have made because they exist, but for you it is different. They exist because you see them. Moreover, when we see that they exist, we see it outside ourselves, but when we see that they are good, we see it by inner vision, whereas you see them as created in no other place than where you saw them as non-existent things you willed to create. So God is going to let us enter into the rest that was his for all time. And that's what Augustine ends on. But you, the supreme good, need no other good and are eternally at rest because you yourself are your rest. And I'm with you, bud. Like how, maybe, maybe we're just in a busy time of our lives, but it's hard for me to think of something better than heaven then we enter into the rest of someone who his, is himself his own rest that can never be taken away from him. Uh, may it be so for all of us here as we come to rest uh, with our first radio reading roundup over St. Augustine's Confessions. I hope you enjoyed it all as well as we did. This is The Uncommon Good. We'll be back right after this. <laughs> The Uncommon Good. Bo Bonner and Dr. Bud Marr joining you this week. Thank you for listening to the show. So wonderful to have you with us. Bud, an exhilarating finish to a fantastic book. Um, thank you for suggesting it all those weeks ago. Um, it has been a highlight uh, for me every week to be doing this with you. So kudos to Brilliant Ideas, and may we have many more. No, it, it was great fun. I do want to apologize to the listeners for singing twice on today's show. <laughs> if uh, Doesn't Augustine somewhere else talk about that singing is like praying twice? Praying twice. So I guess in a way I did that, but pardon to your eardrums. If our listeners do want to give to the fall fundraiser and designate their gift uh, as, you know, sort of like in gratitude for the uncommon good and the fun we have together, I will promise not to sing on the show for... Two months. Well, or if you want to donate money and specify that Bud has to sing a song you have in mind, um, that might be a good way to raise money, too. So just thinking about that stuff there. But but before you sing and pray twice, if people just want to pray once with us on Iowa Catholic Radio, uh, when are the times that they can do so? Yeah, if you want to pray once, you can tune in at 6 a.m. There's the Rosary on Air. Also, again, at 10 a.m. Later in the afternoon, 2.55 p.m., we pray the Chapel of Divine Mercy. 
You can use the Iowa Catholic Radio app to keep up with events, but also to pray the rosary anytime, anywhere. Speaking of events, and like Bud said, you can see that on Iowa Catholic Radio uh, app or iowacatholicradio.com. Just to name a few, coming up September 26th in West Des Moines at St. Francis of Assisi, the Arm of St. Jude the Apostle, which, Bud, they're expecting a lot of people to be at. So that's pretty cool. Veneration starts at 1. There will be a Mass at 7. Veneration ends at 10 p.m. I also know that they're looking for volunteers so you might just give St. Francis of Assisi a call. Um, I'm sure they can direct you to the person who's in charge there, but that's September 26th coming up. Um, Otter Creek Golf Course, September 28th in Ankeny. The Party Golf Benefiting St. Luke, the Evangelist Catholic School, Thursday, September 28th. October 10th in Winterset. Joe Heschmeyer will be at St. Joseph's Catholic Church. The Seven Mysteries of the Faith Unlocked by the Eucharist. Um, Joe Heschmeyer for, with Catholic Answers. October 13th, once more, at St. Francis of Assisi Church um, at noon, Man Up West Power Lunch. Um, again, people can uh, check out what's all going on there by looking at Um On November, uh, oh, excuse me, November 11th, uh, West Des Moines, uh, St. Francis of Assisi, Ladies' Event, Spiritual Warfare with Jeanette Williams, Women of Grace, discussing, as I said, spiritual warfare. And then finally, December 8th, at 6 o'clock, we have the good old dis- dinner in December with Dr. David Anders. Cocktail hour at 6 o'clock, dinner at 7, and then he will take the stage at 8 o'clock. You can go to iowacatholicradio.com, of course, to get plugged in. Um, and then, but of course, we're coming up very soon, next week, correct? Yep. Uh, we're going to be raising money for the fall fundraiser. Please keep in mind donations to this wonderful ministry that is your ministry as well. It can't happen unless... You give of your time, and we're so thankful of you giving time, talent, and treasure. Um, but especially with this giving season, visit iowacatholicradio.com or call or text 515-223-1150 in order to get those donations in. Let's show, uh, let's show them what we're made of, bud, uh, and, and give. What day is it? Like the whole, it's the whole th- time, right, next week? Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah. I mean, like, what day is it right now? Uh, but on the wait. weekend? Yeah. <laughs> I missed my wife's birthday. Uh-oh. Yeah. No, I think I remembered. <laughs> well, I know what I remember, and that's may Jesus Christ, the Prince of Peace, reign in our hearts, family, city, state, nation, galaxy, uh, the whole kit and caboodle. This is The Uncommon Good, and we'll be back next week. The Uncommon Good with Bo Bonner and Dr. Bud Marr is heard every week on wonderful Catholic stations like this one. And anytime on podcast, just search for The Uncommon Good. Support for Iowa Catholic Radio and The Uncommon Good provided by Mercy College of Health Sciences. Learn more at mchs.edu.